This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to a new episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And we're here in a new year. Happy New Year, Danielle. Happy New Year, Millie. I uh, I got to tell you a little secret. I love wishing people a happy new year. Me too, because I don't give a shit about the any holidays. Yeah. So happy new year just feels like so pleasant and innocuous. And also I think too, I think we're both like pretty chill with change and uh you know and maybe that's a little something we'll get into as this episode (laughs) continues but you know we're not afraid of the new year we're not afraid of like starting over and i mean it's so strange because we're still in the 2020 vibe in a weird way i would say um you know unless something happens in the next hour or so but um (laughs) So it's almost like you can only really figure out what your goals will be in relation to when life will be normal, quote unquote, again. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And it's that's what's been really strange for me in terms of my goals, because I, I do have I look forward to New Year's because I do have a set of goals that I kind of try to accomplish every year. And I do something that I found out about through my friend Kelly Sue DeConnick like 20 years ago um, called the Uber list. And it's a list of 100 things that you want to accomplish that year. And it could be anything from big to small and, you know, anything at all that you want to accomplish. So I've been doing that for a long time. And it's the one thing I really look forward to about the new year is that I get to kind of sit and think and make my list right before January 1st. And last year I did my list and you know, then the pandemic happened and I looked at that list like three times since yeah. <laughs> in February. So that was hard because I feel like I usually have some kind of goals to aim for that I can feel like, all right, even if I'm not doing big deal things, I finally got lamps for my bedroom or I finally like did this thing. And then this year just threw all of that like off kilter. So I'm looking forward to doing my Uber list this year, but I think I'm going to make it pandemic friendly like, I think it's OK to still have a couple of goals, but I'm I'm really looking forward to having more self-instruction about how I personally want to get through this and, you know, thrive a little bit more, but also maybe relax about some things a little bit more. Um, I think I need I need a set of pandemic instructions for sure. But what are <laughs> <laughs> and then I also um, on January 1st of every year for the last like say 10 or 15 years I do um, my list of enemies and I limit it to five people because I learned the hard way that if I don't limit it I can just go ham and (laughs) the list gets unmanageable Um, but it's essentially it's not something I share publicly it's just for me and it's essentially a list of five people who I feel like 
are maybe pieces of shit or maybe they've done some done me wrong in some way or maybe I don't know I just you know don't like them (laughs) they're usually public figures or you know sometimes they're people Mm -hmm. in my personal life that was my next question was that are they people that I would know like are they famous is it me I guess maybe that no kidding (laughs) (laughs) you're you're on the list every year at number one slot (laughs) you're like in my you know big fuck you is to start a podcast with her (laughs) is to make her talk to me at least once a week (laughs) no what's weird is like it's usually not there's no one in my personal life that would be in my personal life if they were an enemy so it's usually people that are like in my orbit just like real shitty just real it's my it's it's the corner of my shitty personality that i just won't let go i have adapted i have done yoga i have meditated my way and (laughs) done therapy into being a better person and i am holding on to this one piece of my formerly shitty personality so Uh, listen i applaud anybody who admits things about themselves and also just keeps tabs of people because I feel like by not keeping a list, I'm sort of just walking around in the world being like, Hey, I'll talk to anybody. I'm that person that's like, yo, I'll get in the car with you. Like and go to a party. I don't care if you're a murderer, like we're good. And I feel like that's not a good way to be, especially now. Right. No, a list of enemies might keep you suspicious or at least, you know, kind of, watching yeah eagle eyeing keep me on my toes yeah well, yeah and i will say about the uber list so i did i think very early on in our friendship i did the uber list or you invited me because i felt like it was this big i felt very honored to be included Aww. because it was the kind of thing where uh you gathered a bunch of people to do it and we all like shared it with each other except for like like you told us to you know make our lists and then if there were things that were kind of like private goals that we could hide those but for the most part it was a way to kind of keep everybody accountable right and i got to tell you it was really helpful i didn't complete it of course but i'm just saying for just the task of yeah. having to write down stuff that i wanted to do i think was really helpful. And that's exactly what I use it for. Like I usually break it down into categories. So I'll have things that are like home-based or things to do for my writing or things I want to do for just whimsy. Or when we were able to travel, I would pick travel goals or, you know, my family. I would just pick like categories that I think, you know, these are, and it's like kind of what we were talking about in our intro a little while ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, where you were like, I just kind of want to know more about stuff. And it's stuff like that that I put on there, too. Like, what am I going to memorize to keep Alzheimer's at bay this year? <laughs> I'm also a person I have to build in whimsy in my life because it's just not my natural bent. So I think that it keeps me active. It keeps me in check in that I always have something to turn to if I'm feeling bored. And I can say, well, I can do this or I can start that. Um So it really is. It's nice. It's not meant to be restrictive. It's meant to be expansive. Well, I'm I'm glad that it works for you. I feel like I. Yeah. What are your what are your goals this year? Like what are. okay? so I guess maybe personality wise, my biggest thing, I'm an Aries, so I'm intensely competitive with myself. (laughs) So basically, when I create a list of stuff that I want to do by like February, if I haven't completed every single thing, I start spiraling like right. i'm just like i didn't do anything <laughs> like 
I'm a fucking failure. You know, why didn't I learn how to be a race car driver uh, in a month or whatever? So, I, so your list of enemies would just be five versions of yourself, like Millie, 1985, Millie, 1994. <laughs> Millie yesterday and the day before and last week. No, I, I'm very competitive with myself, which I think over the years has made me kind of have to reassess sort of... <laughs> goal setting if you will like stuff that is within you know it's like they say stuff that's like manageable and you know can be like time oriented you know it's like when they tell you here's how to create a goal that you could actually achieve you have to make it as actually doable as possible right and i'm with you on the idea of like i feel like there's a kind of covid such goal scenario and then there's like a post-covid goal scenario so yeah after covid is over i mean i gotta be honest i have my doubts on whether or not anything will ever be over like when it just comes down to like anything of this magnitude i'm like oh so it just turns off like a light switch i'm like nah man see you for like covid two electric boogaloo or whatever (laughs) like we're like we're in a we've, we're through a looking glass or something, right? I'm with you. I feel like we're gonna get through this quote unquote and just go right into like, oh, it's mutated already. Yeah. <laughs> in my estimation, I'm like, well, let's not get like. I mean, I want to celebrate, but I don't want to also, you know, think that everything is back to the way it was, right. uh, and just be foolish. <laughs> but. Post COVID, I mean, obviously, I think everybody is just going to be constantly doing the things that they weren't able to do in the past year. And I mean, I really want to go to Yosemite, um, mm-hmm. the national park. And I am a big national parks person. I'm a big fan. I have been to many of them over the years, and I have a America the Beautiful Pass. I just love it. I mean, honestly, it's like probably the most patriotic thing that I do is to just be into the national parks. Like, I think it's great that they exist. It's great that like, you know, it's a place for people to vacation and see natural beauty and it doesn't cost that much. And I mean, I know that Trump like kind of started fucking with them, but for the most part, like they're still intact, hopefully. And I just feel like it's just public land and that should exist yeah a place for people to like enjoy nature and you have to use it or lose it it's one of those things right like totally you need to be part of it to really help other people keep the momentum going right and it's that thing too where i feel like yeah as a single woman who goes into nature sometimes by herself a lot of times by herself i would say it's a challenge for me to go somewhere like a national park that's just so expansive and huge and off the grid a lot of times that I really have to psych myself up for it. But luckily I never have problems finding people who want to do stuff with me like that. Um, it just really depends on like, can people take time off? Can people travel? Can people go off the grid or whatever? But there are times where I do a lot of times I would say I go off into nature alone. So anyway, for me, I was like, I've done pretty much most of the national parks, like in Southern California. And, um, I was like, Oh, I want to go to Yosemite because it's one of the biggest ones. I mean, I think Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon are probably like the top three most, you know, they're definitely the most visited, but they just have kind of the most spectacularness in terms of just the landscape or whatever. I kind of want to go by myself 
Not to say that if anybody wanted to go with me, they, I would tell them <laughs> no. But I'm just saying that, like, it's just a challenge for me to do yeah. that kind of stuff alone. And I just want to. But we'll see. We'll see. That's the kind of challenge that I love where you're like, I know that if I do this, it might help me shift something that I have previously relegated to the landscape of this is something I cannot do and feeling competent at doing something that you thought you couldn't do or had trouble with or struggled with is the best feeling in the world. Just accomplishing that is incredible. And I feel you 100% because I was not, even though I was raised in the country, I'm not an outdoor kid. And Mm. um, I've always found it hard to connect to nature. And then when I moved to Alaska is when I really started doing that in a big way and it was scary and weird it, first of all it was weird because I drove there by myself like I drove from New York to Alaska alone it's incredible so I already got like the freaked out feelings out of me just by doing that but then when I got to Alaska and everyone is outdoorsy in some way you know it's not so I was doing things I'd never done before like climbing glaciers and doing like ice climbs and you know going camping and I just I had the gear and I just thought, you know what, I have to try and I would camp and, you know, sometimes it was just car camping, but that's enough. Like, it's not I don't need to meet anyone else's standards and be out here like the fucking guy in 127 hours, like (laughs) sawing my fucking arm off because I decided to hike up a mountain just because I was scared of it. (laughs) You can car camp and it's okay, (laughs) but it was a good feeling. Like I started fishing and I would do like dip netting and, you know, I just really felt more confident and competent in my own abilities being able to do that, even though I don't do that a lot anymore. Um, It's something I kind of want to get back to because I think that there's nothing like being in nature to make you feel like an insignificant little turd in a good way. Like, oh, my problems aren't that bad. I'm part of something. I'm part of something bigger than me. (laughs) Yeah. And also, I mean, to that end, I, I will say that I think that there are a lot of people of color and a lot of women, single women, who are turned off by the idea of sort of outdoorsiness or, you know, the natural world, because it always seemed like a domain for like rich white people, basically. Yes. There's a lot of change going on right now. Just speaking of, you know, stuff that I follow on Instagram and sort of companies that are trying to make that world more inclusive. Um, I mean, there's this, amazing Instagram account called unlikely hikers, where it's somebody who is, you know, basically trying to bring people of color, people of size, you know, the LGBTQ community, like to the natural world and to go out and explore and do all these things that we were always scared of doing. Cause it's like, we just never had that luxury. Right. And I will say that as a child, I think that I, I took to that stuff super quickly. I just think because I was kind of like, you know, I was that type of girl when I was growing up. I was really like, you know, rolling around in the dirt and overalls. I mean, I I was in Girl Scouts for many years. I think that was a huge way that I developed a affinity for outdoors. But it's um, it is challenging. And like I said, I mean, for me. There's something about the survival aspect and not that not that I'm in naked and afraid or anything, <laughs> but I'm like, it is a, it is something so satisfying to be a person that's like, oh, I'm going to just be in the world with no cell phone and and nothing to really tether me 
and I'm just going to have to survive. Yes. And, um, you're right. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's such a satisfying feeling and it just makes me very proud of myself and proud of my friends who do this type of stuff alone as well. Like with you going to Alaska, I mean, actually, I think the whole story about you in Alaska is so incredible. I know you've talked about it and written um, stories about it online and everything, but that's another place I'd love to go to this year is Alaska. I would road trip with you to Alaska so fast. I haven't been back since I, since I left in 2006 and um, it's an incredible place. It's an incredible place. And I feel, I mean, I'm glad you said something about unlikely hikers and kind of, you know, I kind of feel like there have been so many times in my life where moving through the world as a black woman has made me feel out of place or unwelcome. And that is another reason I think to keep putting myself not in the path of danger, but in the path of the challenge. You know, I think that that is something that is a very subconscious drive that I I don't want to feel like I don't belong on this mountain and I don't want to feel like I can't drive through this fucking national park or, you know, go fucking snowshoeing if I want right. to. And it's, you know, we, we belong. A lot of us come from cultures where the earth is a big part of our cultural um, ethos. Yes. And so yes. it's having this be a prohibitive structure in the U.S. is actually quite antithetical to like who we are as people. And I feel the same way about yoga. Like I'm not buying your fucking $150 yoga pants because you've turned yoga into a competitive sport for white women like that's not yep. the ethos of what it is so if I want to do so I have to do yoga at home and in the way that I want to do it and connect with the instructors that make me feel good about it and connect with people like you know Jessamine Stanley and like just people who have who are not these life um you know Jay Jillers which I think is now going to be a, a slang I'm going to try to get going <laughs> I know people really resonated with that that cracks <laughs> me up so much the Jay Jillers <laughs> they're out there we know who they are and I feel like that is it's important to remember that when you're trying new things or challenging yourself or pushing yourself that if part of what is holding you back is feeling like you don't belong in that space you should take a minute and interrogate who told you you didn't belong there? Because chances are it's somebody who is trying to profit on it and, or somebody who is trying to change the direction of what the natural way it's developed should go. So I think that that is just like something to keep in mind is that if you're challenging yourself, it's it shouldn't be a challenge. Like It's not like everything should be a challenge, but I really just feel like there are things, there are structures that are put in place to make people feel out of place and you don't have to fucking buy into that. Yeah. You, and you also don't necessarily need the fancy gear and the fancy shit that is being sold to you to participate in this endeavor. That is a creation of American marketing. 100%. But, you know, I don't know. To me, it can be easy. Um, it just requires a curiosity and, you know, obviously like try to make yourself as safe as you can <laughs> drop a pin as my sister screams <laughs> constantly. Like, especially when I was out in California during the week going down the side of the mountains over, you know, above Hollywood, she'd just be like, drop a pin, drop a fucking pin. And I'm like, I mean, you could get okay. bit by a snake up there for real. It doesn't have to be even like a racial challenge. It could be a fucking snake. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking exactly. fox or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that's exciting. I mean, that's stuff that you can be kind of doing now in a COVID world. I know a lot of people have become suddenly way more outdoorsy. <laughs> I think it's it's become a good option for people who still want to just feel like they're doing something and they're not just in the house every day. But also when we are back to flying, baby. I am ready to travel. I mean, like, is this the year that I'm going to Machu Picchu? Like, Holy are we going to Easter fuck. Island? Like, let's go. You like, know I'm, I'm ready. ready to go to Easter Island any day. Because that was going to be what I did for my birthday last year. Yeah. And I was going to go. I'm like, I want to see those fucking heads. I'm not waiting for anyone. I'm going. <laughs> and then the world well, was like, or not. <laughs> You're never going to see those fucking heads. <laughs> I know. I keep like trying to take myself on a 40th birthday trip and haven't done it in a couple years. So it's this, maybe this my, year it's going to happen. It's kind of my favorite horrible joke. Like every year. <laughs> We've been trying to celebrate your 40th birthday for I two know. fucking years. It's so oh, sad. It's so sad. But, you know. Even Whatever. this year, we were like, okay, like this is the year where we're going to do it. <laughs> Get on a plane and go to a place to celebrate your birthday. Oh, God. I love it. But yeah, I feel like I, I love your goals. And I think that it is like I will support you however possible, even if I'm just the person that you drop a pin to. But Aww. I am very inspired by your willingness to get out into the natural world. And it reminds me again that like we don't have to live by anyone's arbitrary fucking rules. And you can yeah. be out there and do things and challenge yourself. And as long as you're kind, unless people are on your list of enemies, just go fucking do it. Here, here. Here's to a enemy-less 2021. I mean, if you go out in LA for five minutes, you're going to have a list of enemies in a second. <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. confident. I'm confident. <laughs> but that is also part of why I think that I want to... I think part of my discomfort in LA is that it is such an outdoorsy place and people are constantly trying to get me to do outdoorsy things. And I'm like, I don't really enjoy bathing suits, so I'm not going with you to the beach or I don't feel comfortable hiking because I'm not in shape for like I'm not in hiking shape. So I don't want to go. But I feel like there's a lot that I can probably try on my own. Like I've never been I've never even been in Joshua Tree. Like I just don't explore here a lot because I feel like so much of it is is out of bounds for me because the people I see taking part in those activities are a very specific kind of person. <laughs> well, listen, you think I'm out there being all free solo or some shit? Like I am not. Like when it comes down to it, like going on a hike with me invariably means just like walking a bunch yeah. over sort of flat land and making sure that there are no rattlesnakes and <laughs> Chilling the fuck out. I mean, I have been on more challenging types of things, but for the most part, just literally breathing the air and looking at fucking trees and animals is my jam. And honestly, going to Joshua Tree is literally just smoking weed in an Airbnb. That's what going to Joshua Tree is like. And if you get out and go to the National Park, it's like, take a few pictures, but it's... <laughs> when people tell you they're going to Joshua Tree, that's what they're doing. Okay, let's get serious. And the pictures are all going to be blurry because you've been high for five days. <laughs> yeah. And then they didn't, they somehow conveniently mentioned that they went to Palm Springs for a couple nights to stay in like a super fancy mid century modern Airbnb. Oh but then they God. went back to Joshua Tree <laughs> to smoke more weed. 
Well, I'm glad I figured out that code. Thank you for helping me decipher it. <laughs> Let's get the Yo. fuck out there this year. Yo. You're <laughs> You're very inspiring. <laughs> Let's get out there and fuck some shit up. <laughs> Naturally, like in the na- in the nature way. Like fuck shit up with like, oh, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> All right. Should we get into these movies? Yup. So, Millie, what is our theme this week? Well, we figured since it is a new year, we're going to call this theme New Year, New Me. And I think our choices, well, they they reveal a lot about us. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> I think that with that theme and our choices, it reveals a lot about us. <laughs> well, why, why did we want to do this theme? Well, I think it was sort of being in the spirit of the holiday, but also I think going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that these are movies about transformation and change and for, you know, for better or for worse, to be honest. And, um, I I think it's interesting that both of these films are sort of in the sci-fi horror vein, because that maybe is a, interesting route to take when you're thinking about movies about change and transformation and so yeah i i do think there is um there's going to be a lot of interesting discussions today i agree i'm very excited and um you know just just showing my true colors here because the, the movie that i picked for new year new me is the fly released in 1986 Directed by David Cronenberg. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. This is a movie that stars Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. It also stars uh, co-stars John Getz, who is a great actor. If you look him up, you're going to know his face. He's been in everything. Um, he was in Zodiac. He was in Social Network. He was in Blood Simple. He's done a ton of TV. But I instantly recognized him as Gus from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so in this film, uh, it is a remake of a 1958 movie, and both are based on a short story by George Langalon. <laughs> Langalon. Um, And it's about a journalist and a scientist who meet at a party. Uh, The scientist, played by Jeff Goldblum, his name's Seth Brundle, takes her back to his lab and shows her what he's working on, which is the key to teleportation. And then uh, he sends himself through his teleportation devices and shit hops off mm-hmm. to say the least to say the least um, one thing he didn't realize when he sent himself through his telepods is that there was a fly in there with him and it combines with his genetic dna so you know just a typical friday night uh mixing up with some <laughs> flies <laughs> so there's there's so fucking his shit up <laughs> fucking his shit up that's what you do right that's right I, this movie came out in 1986 I was nine years old, and of course I saw it because my grandmother saw it. But I think I think we rented it on VHS. Like, she saw it in the theater, but we saw it on VHS. And um, there are so many iconic scenes in this movie because David Cronenberg, uh, he has a real history of some gore 
He directed Scanners. He directed Videodrome. He directed Dead Ringers and Eastern Promises. Um, he directed Crash, the, but the sex with cars kind of one, not the racial issues in L.A. one. And what's also weird about this movie is that it was produced by Mel Brooks just because he's like this major horror fan. So like, it's the history of gore and horror. is It's strong in this movie. It's strong. And um, the makeup effects for the time, and I'm going to even say now, like at the time they were mind-blowing. They're mind-blowingly good. Uh, and the makeup They're effects... They're still pretty good, I oh, would say, yeah. Yeah, it's still... I still was grossed out when I watched this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you look at so many different Gnarly. ways. Um, but Chris Wallace did the um, makeup effects and the makeup artist was Stephen Dupuis. And then when The Fly 2 was released in 1989, Wallace was actually the director. So we are going to get into this. There are There are so many moments of this movie that freaked me out as a kid that still freaked me out as an adult. But essentially what you're doing is you're watching somebody transform. And it's really about like the hubris of man in a big way. Like the, like how dare you fuck with this shit? Um, Because he develops, Seth Brundle, he develops teleportation as a way to deal with his motion sickness, which is like a bridge too far. Like there's a copper band you can get and just fucking get in a car. You don't have to develop teleportation. But what's also wild is he's like he's like this bright genius person, um, but he's confused by things like the concept of vacations because he and Gina Davis kind of start, you know, they start dating and they start a romantic relationship and she's like we should go away for the weekend and he's like what is this a romance like come on dude you need it spelled out on a chalkboard for you to understand (laughs) so he's already a weirdo like socially inept total weirdo but he starts his process he's figured out teleportation with inanimate objects but he hasn't figured it out with living items or what he likes to constantly refer to in the creepiest way possible the flesh Oh, God, that made me my skin crawl every time somebody said it. Yeah. I haven't figured out the flesh. Well, all right. Maybe that's why, because you're gross. You're starting out in a really gross place with it. Um, Yeah. So he kind of shows Ronnie, the Gina Davis character, he shows Ronnie his experiment with her on her stockings. And she's like, ooh, what happens when you send something living through there? And he's like, I'll show you. And he puts a baboon in the telepod. Sends it through. And again, iconic scenes in this. There are at least two, maybe three iconic images from this film. Um, One of them is he sends his baboon through. And in the haze and smoke of the teleportation, you just see like a bloody hand hit the the door screen and then like kind of slide down. But then here's the thing that fucked me up. The next thing he sends through is a steak. Why didn't he start with the steak? And who keeps giving him all these fucking baboons? Can you not start with the flesh of a steak? I mean, presumably he lives in, it's like a warehouse or a loft or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's so everything he's just about... keeping these baboons in this uh, warehouse with right. him. Right. Like, how is he getting these fucking, ba- like, if you come to me and you even need three baboons, I'm going to be like, dude, what are you doing with these baboons? <laughs> Like, we can't give you another baboon until you tell us what's happening here. And his, everything about his lab says you're going to get murked. Like, everything about his lab is just like, totally. someone's getting killed in here. And right now it's baboons. So then we hit Baboon 2 Electric Boogaloo, and it works. <laughs> it works. So when Gina Davis leaves, like when Ronnie leaves to go and talk to and kind of finally break up with her ex-boyfriend, who's also her magazine editor, who's also her stalker. Because, you know, know. it's the the 80s. Let's just make him the worst possible man we could make him. 
Seth Brundle works himself up into a champagne tizzy and says, fuck it. I'm not going to wait to find out if the second baboon is really okay because he seems okay. I'm going to go through myself. And that's when the fly crawls in there with him and he just disintegrates over the rest of the movie. Um, What is the worst drunk decision that you've ever made? And is it comparable to I'm going to hop in a telepod and merge my DNA with a fly? Once when I was drunk, I was like with my friends and we were like, hey, let's go check out this like creepy building. It used to be a mental hospital or whatever. And I wore flip flops and I just was like, isn't this place condemned? Why am I wearing open toed shoes? That's the only really the only kind of bad decisions I make after a couple drinks. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to say, I'm going to just fuck with all this expensive, weird equipment that I built. I mean, I can't tell you what it would take for me to go from zero to I'm going to crawl inside some scientific stuff I don't understand and just throw caution to the wind. Can't do it. Can't do it. Most of my bad drunk decisions are like sexual. A lot of them are like bad work decisions. Like, I'm fine. I can write this. No, you can't. Sober up. (laughs) Let me get on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. But yeah, he he really just because she left to go break up with her boyfriend, he freaked out because he's adept. He's socially inept. He can't hand. He just he's never had a girlfriend before, I'm guessing. But that's what he did. So then shit pops off and it starts with a couple of hairs on the back. But then it moves into like, you know, you're catching a fly with your bare hand in your sleep. And, you know, you've you've got an assortment of gymnastic moves, eating sugar by the quart. It rages on. It rages on. And then his body starts fucking reacting in terrible ways. This So I got to say, in terms of the horror movie parts of this movie, I think what makes this movie so effective for me, and I'm sure maybe other people feel this way, too, is the rate at which this is all happening, right? So yes. it's not as if, it's not the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing where he just drinks the vial and then like looks himself in the mirror and it's like all this shit just starts happening or like the Teen Wolf effect or whatever. Right. It is such a slow burn that it gives me anxiety in a way that you can't imagine. Oh, and that's the true horror because we've all had those moments of what is that thing on me, right? Oh, I'm guessing. Maybe I'm revealing too much about myself here. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) Like we've all had that moment of like what's happening with my body in some way. And it's terrifying. You're right. The pace of this is truly terrifying because he's essentially he's turning into a fly. That's the process that's happening. It's not that the fly is turning into more human. He is turning into a fly. And so it kind of, you know, it mirrors the metamorphosis and, you know, some other sci-fi beats that um, came out of the 50s. But that's what's happening. And he is going through these stages in terrifying ways. The number one thing that will never leave my mind from this movie is when, and this is how I also learned how flies eat, because there is a whole couple of scenes where he pukes this like white liquid out of his mouth onto the food he wants to consume as he turns more and more into a fly and has to eat it that way because flies can't consume like solids. Let me tell you that my brother and I recreated that scene with milk for like (laughs) two weeks after we saw it. And my grandma got mad 
my grandma got mad at us. Oh, because we were traumatized and recreating a horrible scene? No, because we were wasting milk. <laughs> of course. So she's, she's probably like, yo, there's a lesson in this. But exactly. don't waste my milk. <laughs> the lesson is don't waste my food. I paid for that. <laughs> And it seems like also the things that are happening to him in the beginning are things that seem like they could be the side effects of other less terrible diseases. Like that fingernail scene can go fuck itself. Yes. Oh, people talk about that like crazy. And that was almost more terrifying to me than some of the stuff that happened later. But it's it's just a really interesting kind of movie that turns into like an allegory about abortion rights and bodily autonomy somehow (laughs) but it's really about the hubris of man and you know maybe you're okay the way you are and don't fuck with shit too much first of all i feel like only david cronenberg could make a movie like this and be as good at doing a movie like this because you know a lot of his movies are you know what they call body horror movies where there's always some kind of gnarly body event happening to some character in pretty much all of those movies. But to me, it's like, you're exactly right about the hubris portion of it because you're going, oh, here's a scientist who is so obsessed with his own science, his own brain, his own creation. He literally can't stop himself. And first of all, I have to tell you, this movie is like incredibly sad to me. I don't know yeah. why. It is exactly as you said. It's that idea that somebody can't stop himself and is watching himself kind of disintegrate. But then he's also in this relationship with this outside party, like the Gina Davis character. And she's like, she's in, like she's already Mm -hmm. in, she's already in love with him. So she can't stop herself either. Right. And she can't save him and she can't save herself at at a certain point. Right. And she makes the decision that I think a lot of people, you know, who do not have commitment issues do, which is that they go, I'm in it no matter what. I don't care if this person turns into a fucking creature like I'm here. And so that's what makes it so intense for me. Like this shit is intense. Well, also, is that like love? Is that love? Really? Is that what I'm missing? Because I would be out of there so fucking fast like the ending i mean i don't want to give away the ending but i also feel like people probably know what happens in the end because it seems like it's kind of i mean it's just kind of a parable or something at this point but it's that thing where like he busts out of his any human form and develops those like insect backwards insect legs and i'm like girl you in it now he's got the legs <laughs> i mean truly what is the limit the limit does not exist for this motherfucker because i'm like what when he when he puked on a donut and his ear fell off that's a great way to end a relationship <laughs> that is a premium way to end a relationship you can sign off and nobody will think ill of you like it is done 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 at that point (laughs) i think the reason why i'm so emotional about it is that it's like have i ever felt that have i ever felt that intensely about a romantic partner where i'm just like we gotta stay together i don't care how fucked up this is (laughs) when your legs crack backwards i don't care what the fuck is happening with you i'm out 
There's there's <laughs> nothing good happening after that point when your legs crack backwards and you start sprouting wings. I don't need to stick around and see what happens. I will keep you in my thoughts and prayers and my memories. Yep. And I'm out of there. But it's true. It's like I made I thought that myself like, wow, she is when I was a kid again, like watching this, my grandmother, her commentary was always look at this stupid bitch. Why isn't she running? You know, like that's her go to <laughs> get out of there. Like the whole from the minute she saw the hairs, my grandma's like, uh, uh-uh, get out of there. Nope. This is how I learned to love is from somebody who's like, get out of the run. <laughs> yeah. run so yeah i don't know i mean I, i'd like to think that i have that kind of love in my heart but i'm not sticking around for you puke on a donut and your ear falls off i, I can't for so many <laughs> reasons i can't and i i have to feel like that's okay yeah and it's touching that it ends the way that it does yeah. for so many reasons the ending to the fly please don't make fun of me for this because it was <laughs> i feel miserable when that movie's over like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, my God, like this shit is so intense and sad and fucked up and terrible that it's like it feels like the ending of. I mean, just like a really sad children's movie or something. I mean, I hate to even make that equation, but it's that feeling of like. God, what a conundrum these people were in. <laughs> I am not going to make fun of you for that. I think that it is a brutal ending and a, and a brutal film. And I don't recommend watching it at night. I think watch it during the day and have something uplifting planned to do after. Whatever makes you smile. Have something kind planned after you watch this. Because you can't go to bed on the back of this movie for so many reasons. But it's great. I fucking love this movie. And I just... It was truly the first thing I thought of when we picked this theme. Like, oh, no, oh, you're new me. <laughs> we got to do the fly. <laughs> the worst and best example of you don't have to be the new you. Seth Brundle was so smart and was going places before this. Like, you don't have to always push it to the limit and push yourself to the max to be who you think is the better version of yourself. Yeah. This isn't a movie where he decides that he's going to pluck his eyebrows at home and that just keeps going. And can't ah! stop. I mean, this is like something completely insane. And and the thought experiment of that is really kind of a message to everybody in the new year. You're right. Like, you don't have to go insane. More than anything, look, it's like our grandma's always said, just don't do science in a champagne tizzy. <laughs> Your grandma definitely said that. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your movie for the theme? So my movie is a movie from 1966. It is called Seconds, directed by John Frankenheimer. Bold. Bizarre. Terrifying. Rock Hudson, in an astonishing change of pace, stars in Seconds. So, uh, just have to say right off the bat, the cinematographer for seconds is my man, James Wong Howe, again, coming back with another Oscar for cinematography. Yeah, he's, (laughs) he's my man. Uh, but also opening titles for seconds were designed by my other man, Saul Bass, the legendary Saul Bass. I saw that in the credits and I was like, what's up? 
fully there. Love Saul Bass. Google him if you don't know who we're talking about for the love of God. So Seconds was made during like this particularly successful period for John Frankenheimer. So he was basically a TV director. He did a lot of those like, um, you know, in the 50s, how they had those like Craft Macaroni and Cheese Playhouse presents something. He was doing lots of that. But he had already directed a handful of movies, including uh, Birdman of Alcatraz. But then sometimes people will refer to Seconds as the last movie in this like paranoia trilogy. And it's with the Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May. And those movies are kind of more political thrillers and like kind of less science fiction-y than Seconds. But all three are great. And I will encourage anybody to watch them if they haven't. So ostensibly, Seconds is about a middle-aged man named Arthur Hamilton. And Arthur is bored and he's checked out from his job at the bank and his family and his life. And he basically just kind of sits around sweating all the time. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my man, my man strokes the funk when it comes to that sweat. Oh, sweating like a motherfucker. And because of this, he's more or less prodded, I would say, into taking an incredibly hard sale offer to join this organization, which is ominously called the company and the company basically tells him, Hey, you can like leave this shitty sweaty life behind and <laughs> become a quote unquote reborn, uh, which is their term, which basically entails that the company will stage your death to where your body will not be able to be identified that it's you. Um, I think in Arthur's case, it was like a hotel fire or something like that. Then, they will perform this intense plastic surgery on you to give you like a new face, a new body. They're going to give you a new name, a new identity. Like Arthur's new name is Tony Wilson. And he just has this completely new life. And I have to say as an added bonus for Arthur is that he comes back to life as 1966 Rock Hudson, who was one of the hottest men to ever live. I mean, so if, if you're coming back... And you get to choose I mean, a face? Yes. If you don't choose Rock Hudson, there's something deeply wrong with you. <laughs> Eventually, Tony realizes that even with this complete freedom that he now has with this like gorgeous younger man's look and this new life, you know, he's like a he's like this cool painter who like lives on the beach in Malibu and he's single and he doesn't have kids. And he's got this like new beautiful girlfriend who's played by Salome Jens, who apparently was on star Trek, but I've never seen star Trek. So I don't, I don't know. Just in case we get some DMS. I know that she's in star Trek, but I don't know anything else. We know. And we don't give a fuck. Yeah. We'll Google it. Okay. <laughs> don't don't yell at me. So in spite of all this stuff, he imagine this, he isn't happy still. <laughs> He's still not happy, right? And then that's when the company really starts to like put the screws on him in a lot of these like scary, fucked up ways. Okay. So I want to put this in a little bit of a historical context just because, okay, so this is 1966. Everyone is kind of in the middle of the whole counterculture thing. And so there's a, a handful of studio films during this time 
that are all about squares who are like having a reckoning with the concept of their personal freedom or following their bliss or whatever. And of course it's mostly about men. Okay. Um, you know, I think of, there's a movie that came out, I think the year before, uh, it's called the sandpiper with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. And it's like, this is the movie. This is the era that I'm thinking of. Like there's a guy in a polo shirt and shorts that gets taken to a party on the beach with like a bunch of bohemian people. And there's like a free spirited woman who's like trying to get him to relax all the time, you know, and that's, that's the, the, the tone. Right. And, and culturally this fits in cause this came out in 1966 and culturally this fits in with, uh, that kind of Betty Friedan second wave feminism, like yes. housewives who wanted to liberate themselves sort of, sort of thing. Definitely. I mean, at this time, like there's a lot of comedies about people who are like complaining about their hippie daughter or they're like the new hippie girlfriend of the guy in the office or whatever. Uh, there's quite a few old people accidentally taking LSD movies. Like <laughs> it's, it's like, it's just like this pre Don Draper ass mess. Basically. And what, what I love about it is that's the the only way you're seeing people of color usually in these movies is like they're the yeah. drug dealer. They're they're the ones having fun at the party. <laughs> they're putting yeah. on the record in the background. Exactly. Exactly. They're in like a low cut bikini bottom wiggling or something. Um, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and, and I will say like seconds kind of dips into this territory some, but I think it manages to be way less corny. And just way more terrifying, maybe, which I think is obviously to the credit of John Frankenheimer and James Wong Howe, um, because I think that what what they did is they just kind of cooled down the lesson of the movie, but then they also just made a crazy fucking art film, which is awesome. And um, part of how it is effective for me is that it is shot First of all, it's shot in black and white. And, you know, as we've seen with something like the Honeymoon Killers, shooting in black and white just kind of gives it this whole like weird newsreel footage type of thing. And basically because of James Wong Howe, there's just tons of like really trippy, unsettling camera angles. And I know that him and John Frankenheimer experimented with like fisheye lenses and they were doing all these other things in the movie to purposely make everything look distorted. Like some, in some scenes they designed the sets to be off and they would like mount cameras on the, on the gurneys and the hospital and stuff. And then for me, the weirdest part is that they, they shot it silent because of all this experimental camera stuff they were doing. So then they just dubbed in everything else, like the dialogue, which to me makes it sound super detached and artificial and freaky. And it just contributes to the weirdness of it. And also, I just have to say that was an actual nose job that they filmed in the scene with when Arthur first goes under the oh. knife. And apparently it made somebody on the set pass out. I can't watch that. Even when like the real housewives do it, I'm like, no, nope, yeah. turn this off. I cannot do. It. And that would look pretty intense. Yeah, I was. It's it's very real. And now we know it was real. Oh, my but, gosh. 
I, I love that plastic surgery scene. It has one of my favorite lines in this movie, which is the rock husband character is all bandaged up and, you know, he's got little eye holes poking through his bandages and oh. he's like, oh, like he's trying to speak. And the doctor just turns to him and he goes, what are you doing? I took out your vocal cords and all your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You fucking moron. Like, who do you think you are? This is the company. This isn't some, you know, two bit identity changing organization. Oh, God. Uh, but um, <laughs> let's okay. Let's talk about Rock Hudson. Okay, mm. I would say this is easily the weirdest film that he was in at this time. Yeah, um, which is something that I love. He was in a lot of different types of movies in his career, but I this at this particular moment, people knew him most for being like the hunk in the Doris Day movies and the Douglas Sirk movies. Um, I did an episode of Karina Longworth, you know, from, you must yeah. remember this. I did an episode of her podcast a while ago. Love her. And she, I think that she called it his himbo period, <gasps> which is so perfect. So the, that's the greatest thing about him being in seconds because like, okay, so you'll never have to sell me on him, right? I just love him too much. Like even in seconds when he's got like blood blisters under his eyes after being fucking Frankenstein, like I they I'm still like, made it still look hot. all right. Yeah, they made it look all right. I was like, you know what? On my best day, I've looked worse. Yeah, exactly. But you like, like in the movie as an actor, I'm like, listen, look at this. Not just a pretty face, people. He's got chaps. He's got real chaps. He seems like he's really weighed down by. Ennui. Like he's feeling it. He is coming apart at the scenes 100 percent Yeah. You know, maybe I'm projecting my own my own analysis here, but you know, we as we know, of course, I mean, he was a closeted gay man in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if that like would have seeped into his performance in this movie, which is all about identity and transformation, you know, who knows? It's like well, there is that scene, which I, I thought about that because I thought about, you know, what we had talked about a couple of weeks ago in terms of like the gay panic and what was kind of happening in like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s in film. And there is a scene where it's a room full of men just kind of holding him down on a bed after a, a drunk, a drunken misadventure. Um, and he's like, why are they all staring at me? And it just felt like knowing what I know and knowing what we know now, that scene takes on a whole different flavor in that way of like the, the, the gay panic and the identity issues and, you know, the things that he must have been that he had to conceal in order to have a, a career. Yeah. And also I've read that he was actually drunk in those scenes. I mean, that just kind of adds again to maybe what you've just said, you know, might've been some real shit going on there. Who knows? Oh, wow. That's fascinating. And also this is just for me. And only me. But <laughs> this movie made me realize that Rock Hudson had freckles on his back. And it made me absolutely crazy. <laughs> I totally I, missed that. <laughs> there's a scene where he's getting the light and it's shown in his face. I think it's like towards the end. And he's got no shirt on. And I'm like, he has freckles on his back. I want to die. That is so cute. And it just made me 
lust for him in a way that I never lusted before. Now, let me ask you, if he had fly hairs coming out of those freckles. <laughs> does, not going to lie. <laughs> does the feeling remain? <laughs> I would probably still hit. I'm just saying. But oh god, that actually did not, that actually did not occur to me that we both have like back scenes, male back scenes in these movies, drunken back scenes. <laughs> so that's the that's the what the theme should have actually been called. Oh right? god! Oh my god, that's so great. I am so glad that you chose this movie because I'd never seen it before, and this is exactly the kind of thing that I love and that I. Part of the reason I really wanted to do this podcast, to be honest, is that like you recommend movies that are things I would never have seen otherwise and are so good. Like all I knew of Rock Hudson was when I was growing up is that he was one of the first prominent celebrities who had AIDS and, and it, you know, came out and had AIDS right before he died. Very sadly. Um, but he really put a different spin on that that disease at that time and kind of um, in the way that, you know, Princess Diana did when she went to the hospital to visit sick kids and to visit, you know, AIDS patients. So he and his kind of last great act sort of wanted to dismantle the stigma, or at least that's how I, how I remember it. Um, so I knew I didn't even know of his acting before I knew of his life. And I really, really love going back into these kinds of movies. This, this is the kind of thing that like my granddad would have been like, that's a good picture. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, old man. But like it actually is. And I don't know. I just I really appreciate being able to get this glimpse into movies that I would never watch otherwise. And it's so good. Oh, man, I'm so that really warms my heart that you liked it. And even like from from the get go, it's like him being sold into this idea was very psychological thriller and like the friend that kind of loops him in and what happens with that story. And yeah. and I, I will say this, if the guy who's selling you a major plastic surgery overhaul looks like the Crypt Keeper, <laughs> you might want to reconsider that. You might want to cut and run. If you're not, you're not dipping into your own stash, <laughs> I can't if, fuck with you. If they're not trotting out their hottest Kardashian sister as an example, then I ain't got time for this. Run. You gotta run. get out of here. So well, yeah, that is. So <laughs> talk about like a psychological thriller. You're like, wait, you're trying to tell me that I need an overhaul? Exactly. Exactly. I do think this movie is legitimately freaky. And yeah, you know, I mean, and it's not just me having gen general trauma from like all the surgeries and hospital stuff in the movie, but it's like, it's that idea of being coerced into something this extreme because you're like at a low moment maybe with your life and how you look and your aging and all this stuff and you're bored as hell. And then the idea that you buy into the situation and you're this person that you want to be and then you're not happy still, you know? Yes. Yes. I, gotta, I have to, I have to talk about this one scene because it is, so like the scene when Tony goes back to see his old wife who thinks that Arthur is dead, but it's really Tony. Um, I mean, that shit was so crazy. First of all, I kept thinking, okay, who does she think he is? Because right now he is coming across as like Arthur's secret gay lover. Yes. I mean, he ba basically I'm thinking, is she thinking, um, 
is this stranger here and did he have like a broke back mountain situation going on with my late husband because he knows a lot about the interior of my home and what yes. used to be here and what isn't here any longer and, and who were you to arthur but then our knowing that tony is arthur He's sitting there and he's noticing that she changed all the fucking decor and like throughout his paintings. Like, would you not have turned over all those new couches in her house? I would have been. <laughs> I mean, what a mind fuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, because this is again, this is part of it. We're like that whole second wave feminist thing where for white women where it was very centered on housewives and liberation and as soon as he was out of her life she was like fucking peace because he didn't want to have sex with her like they he even explained he was explaining his relationship he's like well we're kind of companions like we're kind of like friends and she was probably feeling that too and as soon as she had the chance it was like deuces i'm gonna get a new sofa peace we are redecorating, baby. <laughs> like, this guy's gone. Yeah. But just that, you know, just that sort of science fiction-y conundrum of like, right. whoa, that is fucking crazy. I would have gone ape shit. I would, yeah. not, I would not have been able to be in that situation and be like, mm, that's nice. Bye. I'd been like, I'm your fucking dead husband. Did you not think I'd come back and haunt this bitch? <laughs> I died in a hotel fire and I'm back to tell you this does not belong here. This used to be a study. Go get my paintings. What's up? Like I wouldn't yeah. be able to hold it in. If the day comes in real life, if the day comes where they can put our brains into someone else's body, like the body has died, the flesh has died. <laughs> the flesh. Yeah. And the, the brain is flesh. Being, <laughs> the brain is being transplanted. There's no way. I don't care if you put me in the body of like a fucking 23-year-old soccer player from Venezuela. Like I'm gonna be like, my name is Danielle Henderson. <laughs> and here's what's up. <laughs> yeah. I need immediately to make a list of enemies i need to check my uber <laughs> list how's my cat do it like i am there's no way like you can change the body all you want but if my brain is still kicking you could take out my vocal cords and all my teeth and i'm still gonna find a way to tell you guess who's in here it's me can't kill the inside baby <laughs> yeah i mean and that i guess is the lesson of of seconds really is that just like before you step into 2021 to have your you know, tummy tuck or Juvederm or whatever, you know, just make sure that you haven't been blackmailed into a fake death by a secret organization. Okay. Do some hard research before you walk into a Botox place, like all willy nilly or whatever, like know what you're dealing with. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. And on the flip side of that, even if it's not a company that is going to snatch your life away and totally transform your body it could be that situation where that 18 year old kid was pretending to be a doctor <laughs> like just don't do it do your research in general <laughs> yes yeah. these medical folks are not out here especially in the wake of the fucking COVID-19 I feel like once COVID-19 ends I would be shocked if every med every single person who's part of medical personnel doesn't take a five-year break like, we just don't have any doctors or nurses for five years. And they're like, you, yeah. you're on your own. If you got the vaccine, cool. If you didn't, I, I can't help you. I'm done. Yeah. And the only ones that will be left will be like Dirty John. Absolutely. <laughs> They'll Absolutely. be there to 
steal your anesthesia medicine and you know that's about it they're not there to help they're just here for the meds baby just just look don't don't sell your face to a company don't let anyone rip out your vocal cords and your teeth unless you know if, I, I don't know if you if you had a 94% guarantee that you'd come out looking like rock hudson would you do it 94 yeah i mean my number is in the low 70s let's get serious like if i had a 37 percent chance of looking like rock hudson like actual rock hudson the man like not like a a hot female equivalent like if i was going to look like rock hudson i would and it was a 37 percent 22% 22% chance, maybe. I'd do it. I love that it's dropping. Like 37, 22. You know what? Five, 5%. Why not? I'm easy, I'm, I'm easy to get to the operating table when it comes down to it. You're going to come out with just the back freckles. And they're going to be like, we tried our best. <laughs> Mr. <Mr. Jericho." laughs> we stuck a couple fly hairs in there. I hope that's all right. Oh, good. Oh, the best. Well, I I fucking love this movie. I'm so glad you chose it. And I think for our new, I think the message of our new year, new me is much like our advice for the rest of the year, which is just don't. Don't. (laughs) Just don't. D-O-N-T. Let's read an email. We're, We're starting out the new year. Let's read at least one. So you guys are great and you've been sending us so many emails and we wanted to take a chance to answer some of them. So we're going to have our producer, Lauren, read a couple of the emails to you and we are going to respond. Take it away, Lauren. We have an email from B. So B's backstory. They were raised on a farm um, in a very religious household and they did not see a movie until they were in college. So B writes... Now, to answer the question, what was the first movie I ever saw? After much debate and argument, my doormates decided that my very first movie would be, drumroll please, The Lion King. Safe and iconic. It was a breathtaking experience. Over a decade later, I still often find movies to be really fascinating and fun, but overwhelming. My brain never developed the ability to cope with all the different storylines and plot twists and soundtracks and rapid character development, etc., etc. Sometimes it's just a little too much to take in. I can't wait to hear you two fabulous ladies share your own experiences with us and with each other, and I look forward to adding many of your movie suggestions to the list. So just looking for your recommendations. Thanks, B. I mean, what a life. I hope you're writing a book or starting a podcast or writing a movie. I don't I mean, can you go from not seeing them to writing them? I think yes. And I think you should. <laughs> this is a great question. Um, thank you for sharing your your life with us. I would go for I'm kind of just trying to think of movies that I saw when I was younger that still hold up. And I would recommend The Jerk. Because there are so many cultural references in that movie that you will probably get once you see it. And if you watch like The Simpsons or you watch something else, plus it's just like it's a purely funny movie. This is such a fascinating situation because, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I I am fascinated by the idea that you didn't see the first movie you saw was much later in life. I completely understand the idea that you find it hard to keep up with like the pace of new movies because 
I'm obviously going to advocate for people to watch old movies, not just because I work at old movies, but I actually think that older movies are edited differently. And there is something about the tempo and the pacing of older films, especially like pre sixties films that might be a little gentler for somebody who isn't used to the big flash edit. I call it like an MTV style of editing. And I feel like I read something recently where there is something to that effect of like kids these days that are watching television and film that was made after a certain time are actually seeing like their eyes are moving faster because the editing is so is so much more quick and that they're having like developmental problems because of it. It's just the way that things move now. They move just so much more faster and quick and it's louder and you know, I don't know. So I'm saying if you want like a real gentle dip into the movie pool, maybe start with like a thirties or forties comedy like a thin man or something like that. I mean, it's made in a different time, but it's also really funny, really sweet, like just a great film for like the screwball comedy era, but it's like timeless. You know, you'll love Nick and Nora. They're so, they're so great. I love that. That makes me think of um, Arsenic and Old Lace would also be a good one to yeah, add to that. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, I would say like anything like that. Even like the screwball comedy genre of that era, which is supposed to be faster and the jokes are quicker. It still seems like a fucking glacier compared to what's out now. Like rapid fire comedy of the 30s and 40s is not the rapid fire comedy. Of now. I'm just saying visually, especially so. That's a great answer. Thanks, Millie. Thanks, B, for yeah. writing in. Um, and thank you for listening to our podcast, even though you've never seen a lot of the films yeah. we're talking about. Like, hopefully this will give you more to add to your list also. Yeah, I love I love that you wrote in. So great. Thanks. OK, we have an email from Catherine. Catherine um, says, Danielle, when you talked about your hometown of Warwick and holla, 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 holla. <laughs> I started both laughing and crying. I'm from West Milford, right over the New Jersey border. I spent a lot of time in Warwick growing up and still do. Your description of the strange small town charm really hit home, literally. It is such a vibe and you absolutely nailed it. I can't wait to watch Nobody's Fool just for that and Paul Newman, of course. Millie, any recommendations for a great period piece that doesn't get the hype it deserves? My parents have watched a movie every Saturday night for the past 35 years or so, and I would love to be able to suggest something they haven't seen. My dad is super into history, presidents and military specifically. And my mom loves great costume design. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for writing in, Catherine. And look, Wes Milford has the, an iconic image from my childhood, right? Wes Milford has a flower shop that has the biggest sign I've ever seen of an actual sunflower wearing like a top hat and they paint it different colors every few years, but it is just beautiful and hilarious. And and I love it. I love anyone who came from, from that part of the world. So thanks for writing in. I love that. She mentioned holla, holla, holla. <laughs> you heard me laughing when Lauren said that, but it just cracks me up when anybody has to type out our stupid episode titles i'm like <laughs> laughing hysterically um oh, so uh oh my gosh this is tough because 
presidents and military <laughs> is, um, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily the first thing that I go for. So I might try to give a recommendation for the dad. That's more of the dad's vibe and then maybe more yeah. the mom's vibe. Okay. You mean you can't think of a, a, a <laughs> presidential military movie that has great costume design? <laughs> well, what I think is great is like Liberace's Closet. I don't know if that, yeah. you know, I mean, it, and there's also a lot of like suggestions that I might give that would kind of turn all that on its own, like, you know, kind of chop and screwed versions of like history, like Marie Antoinette, like the right. Sofia Coppola movie. I would ask your dad if he's seen Glory. Yeah, that's a, that's a one. That's a one for <laughs> that's sure. What comes to mind. I mean, spe- speaking of military, though, I mean, honestly, like one of my favorite movies of all time is about World War II. It's this movie called The Best Years of Our Lives. I think everybody has either heard of it or maybe saw it um, with their dad or something. But it is gorgeous. It is about, you know, three soldiers coming home from the war and they're kind of getting reintegrated into their home lives and they have very different scenarios. And it is incredible. It's a William Wyler movie. So it looks gorgeous. You have Frederick March, who is like the most charming drunk on screen like he's incredible but he's also just an incredible actor um it's a little bit long but it also has just a lot of like side of the times type of stuff so there's a lot of like you know scenes in bars and in like dance halls and um you know so it's a it's a great movie and then um if you want something newer and like pretty newer and it has a historical element to it, but it's also like great costume design. I would actually probably recommend, maybe this is a little too weird, but Phantom Thread, the Paul mm. Thomas Anderson movie. That movie is fascinating to me. I've seen it a lot and I could really go on a tangent about it, but it is actually about women's fashion from the fifties. It's kind of got like, it's like the Grace Kelly era. So it's a lot of like, just imagine Grace Kelly, like Princess Grace, like those types of outfits. And I think it's it would be an interesting period of time because it's like it's the early 50s. So that's kind of like a period that people they don't really make. They have made movies about the early 50s, but it's like it for me when I saw Phantom Thread, I thought, oh, yeah, like they, this is it's like this exists. It's kind of like Downton Abbey where everyone's like, oh, yeah, that period that mm-hmm. no one ever makes period pieces about so that might be a suggestion again i love that yeah might be a little too psychologically like you know it's it's mostly about a relationship i don't know if that's if your parents are in good standing with each other it is covid after all uh i don't Look, know they've been watching a movie every saturday for their whole marriage and their adult daughter is writing to us they need some recommendations and they <laughs> They sound like they're strong enough to withstand a good one or a bad one or whatever comes in between. Yeah, yeah. I think they're just happy for to switch it up. And I also think that, you know, let's not forget that when it comes to movies about good costume design, you know what I would recommend? Ernest Goes to Jail. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> How did I do? I was literally going. That E was on the tip of my tongue. I mean, a great vest. A great vest. Hall of Fame the hats. The hats alone. Yeah. Did he wear a vest in that movie? He did, didn't he? Yeah, he wore like a denim vest for sure. Yeah. Uh, 
That is always going to be your go-to recommendation (laughs) if you haven't figured that out already. But if you have any other questions for us... What's the email address, Ernest? It's I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Awesome. And yeah, we're we're also in these Instagram and Twitter streets at I saw pod. And um yeah, I guess that's it, huh? We got some movies next week to recommend that you watch because we're gonna drop a theme and some movies on you. Do you know the films? Do you want to announce them? Uh so next week we are watching Bronson, which was released in 2008. And The Wolf of Wall Street, which was released in 2013. Oh, my God. What could it be? What is the theme? You're going to think you know. You're smart. You're smart at guessing our themes, I got to say. But you're going to think you know, and I don't think you know. Yeah, this might be like deep within the recesses of our fucked up minds. (laughs) We just brought you seconds and the fly for New Year, New Me. So just keep that in mind when you're guessing. Happy New Year, Danielle. So glad to be with you in 2021. And... Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, Millie. Thank you. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Matza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at iSawPod. And please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 